Good morning, church. Do you join me, please, in Leviticus chapter 11 that has been read for us this morning? Our focus this morning will be an overview of Leviticus chapter 11 through 15. Leviticus chapters 11, 12, 13, 14, and 15. If you've been following with us in Leviticus, uh, you'll remember that God is in the book of Leviticus setting up a worship system that explains how God will live, he will dwell with these sinful people that are so unlike him. And this worship system that, uh, that has God, which is symbolized by the temple and the, the temple artifacts, it has the sacrifices themselves, the priests, and of course the worshipers. Uh, we have discussed the sacrifices and we have discussed the priests last week, and so today our attention will uh, come to the worshipers themselves in the Levitical worship system. What is it that God requires from worshipers, those who come to worship Him and sacrifice to Him, in Leviticus? Well, what we will discover is that it is not really different, that much different from what He wanted with regards to the sacrifices and what He wanted from the priests. You'll remember that the sacrifices were to be without blemish. They were to be without spot. And the priests themselves were to be as humanly possible without blemish, uh, without spot. And today we will see that the worshippers themselves must be clean. Worshippers must be clean. That is, they must not have visible blemishes or imperfections in order to worship God. Their bodies must not carry any visible signs of death and incompleteness and decay when they come to worship God at the tabernacle. Chapters 11 to 15 deal with things that make a worshiper unclean. So, that is unfit to come to the temple. Chapter 11 deals with animals that can be eaten or not eaten. So if you eat these animals, you become unclean. You become unfit to come to the temple and worship. Chapter 12 and chapter 15 deal with bodily discharges, that if you have those bodily discharges, you are unclean. That is, you are unfit to come to the temple to worship. And then chapters 13 and 14 deal with leprosy. If somebody has leprosy, they cannot come to the temple. We'll look at each of these under those three headings. We'll look at the, the animals that make you unclean. We'll look at the bodily discharges and leprosy. But it is important first, before we get into these, to understand what is meant by unclean. When you hear the word in Leviticus and throughout the Old Testament, and even sometimes in the New Testament, of course, this is discussed. The word unclean, what does it mean? Well, these things generally did not mean that the person who is unclean is somehow in a sinful state, but rather that they are unclean to come into contact with holy things. That is a very important distinction. In other words, if you're unclean, it doesn't necessarily mean that you have sinned, but that you are in a state at that moment when you're unclean, a state that is unfit to come into the presence 
of God. You cannot come to the tabernacle. Properly, then, this is where we come in in the New Testament. Properly. This is where the lesson is for us. This is less about the worshiper and it is more about God. The worshiper has to be in a particular kind of state, a sacred state, in order to approach the Lord. If you are approaching a king tomorrow, think with me for a moment. If you're approaching a king tomorrow, you would prepare yourself. You wouldn't wear your jeans. and uh, Well, maybe some of you would wear your jeans, but that's because <laughs> you need to know that you shouldn't wear your jeans when you're meeting a king. Okay, but you wouldn't, you, you'd prepare yourself. You would, you would, you'd fix your language. You'd ensure that you are approaching the king in the, in the right manner. And the amount of preparation tells us about the exalted nature of the person that you are approaching. I clarify this because we must know that when we look at these chapters, we must be clear what it is that we're studying. We are studying analogies, that is, things that teach us about God. When we approach these chapters, we must ask this question, why does this thing make a person unfit to approach God? You with me? Why is it that if somebody eats this or if somebody is in this state, then now they are unfit to come into the presence of God? And of course, it is, that is anchored in what we find throughout these passages. And for example, you can see it in Leviticus chapter 11 and verse 43 and to verse 45. Look at verse 43 to verse 45. It says this. It says, it says this. He says, you shall not make yourselves detestable with any of these animals and become unclean through them. Verse 14, for I am the Lord your God. Consecrate yourselves, that is, make yourselves sacred. Set yourselves apart, therefore, and be holy. Why? For I am holy. You shall not defile yourselves. Verse 45, for I am the Lord who brought you out of the land of, of Egypt. You shall therefore be holy, for I am holy. These things teach us less about us, and they teach us more about God. God says these things defile the Israelite when he comes to worship, because they are making him common, whereas God is holy. So then our question is this, what is it about these things that makes a person unclean? And therefore, what does that teach us about God? What do we learn? What information do we get about God? So that is really going to be the, the controlling question we're asking as we're going through these. So let's get into them now together. The first one is the animal food laws in chapter 11. This, this is a categorization of animals that you can eat uh, and animals that you cannot eat. Now chapter 11 of Leviticus is possibly one of the most debated chapters in all the Bible. Uh, chapter 11, of course, is dealing with these animals. And there are many questions here. Why does God allow certain animals, and why does he not allow others? And the biggest question, which really for us is, if this is so important, why does the New Testament repeatedly say, no food or no animal, nothing that you eat makes you unclean? You remember, we even looked at this when we looked at Acts chapter 10 last year. In Mark chapter 7, the Lord Jesus declares once and for all that nothing that goes into a man makes him unclean, but rather what comes out of a man 
The, the sin and, the, and all of the things that comes out of his man's mouth and his heart and his mind, that's what makes him unclean. So, why was, so then why is this even here if Jesus can come and say that? What purpose does this have? Well, to understand these first, or understand what these might be teaching us, we need to first look at some of the detail. First, God makes clear in each category what animal is clean and what animal is not. So in verse 3, look at verse 3 of chapter 11. Verse 3, when, we, when we, he's dealing with land animals, and he's saying whatever is cloven-footed and parts the hoof and chews the card, that's the standard. So then he makes a few examples. The, canam, the camel doesn't qualify because the camel uh, doesn't part the hoof. And the pig in verse 5, does, while it parts the hoof, it doesn't chew the cud. The, the, the standard for land animals is that it must be cloven-footed and parts the hoof and chew the cud. Verse 9, water animals. When it comes to water animals, fins and scales are the standard. So when, if, a, if an animal is in the sea or in the river, it has to have fins and scales. If it doesn't have that, don't eat it. Verse 13, we have a list of birds that are out of bounds. Now, when you start reading this list of birds, one thing becomes very clear to you. These, this is a list of birds of prey. So birds that eat meat. And so that will then, therefore, these birds will be carrying dead carcasses in their mouths. Verse 20, flying insects with many legs. That, those animals are unclean because they, they have many legs is the reason that is given in verse 20. They are unclean for you. Verse 29, swarming small animals that includes all kinds of reptiles, animals that have an indeterminate form of movement, whether it's on the belly or, or swarming, those animals are all unclean for, for the Israelite uh, worshiper in the Levitical system. So why are these animals unclean? It must be stated first that this is a hotly debated topic throughout 2,000 years of church history, and I have no illusions of grandeur that I'm going to be able to solve a problem that many scholars in church history have not been able to agree on entirely. However, there are some theories that we must reject out of hand. There are some theories. So there are some who say that the reason that these are, the animals that are rejected are rejected is because of health reasons. You know, these animals are, they are filthy, they are unclean, they are, they are unhealthy for us to eat. Well, there's no such thing in the text. The text has nothing like that that even makes us lead to understand that it's because this animal is going to make me sick. And it would be rather irresponsible of the Lord Jesus to come and say, eat everything that's un unhealthy for you. It would be rather, un it would be rather irresponsible for him, for him to say that. So we, we have to reject that. It's not because of health. While you and I today might think, you know, a pig is very filthy, so you might choose not to eat it. You, that's your own prerogative, but that's not the mind of God that is here. That's not the reason that is given here. Uh, the reason that is given for the pig, for example, is very simple. It does not chew the cud. That's the reason why you shouldn't eat a pig in the Levitical worship system. Uh, some other theories are that these, anim these unclean animals are used in pagan worship. So these are animals that, you know, snakes would be used in pagan worship and pigs would be used in pagan worship and and eagles are used in pagan worship, so therefore 
we should, uh, that's why God says to the, to the Levites that these must not, be, you, must not be eaten by the Israelites. And again, we have to debunk that one because bulls and goats and rams were also used in pagan worship. And in fact, the, the biggest prize in terms of worship in the Levitical worship system is the cow, is the bull. If you're, if you're able to bring a bull, that's the highest thing that you can bring to come and worship. And we see Baal and all these others use the same animals. So that one it doesn't work. Well, some, because of the difficulty, say that these rules are just arbitrary. God is just picking, you know what, I'm just going to make rules out of, out of thin air almost, just to make, don't eat this, don't eat this. It's just arbitrary. Don't, we shouldn't be thinking about it any deeply. There's nothing for us to learn. And that's rather negative. If we know anything about God, we know that God does things for a reason. God doesn't just do things arbitrarily in that way. So I want to I I share with you the answer that I think makes the most sense. Um, and there's two parts to it. There's, there's two parts of, of answers, of the answer that makes the most sense. And let me quote for you Gordon Wenham here. And, and, we, we see, and, we, and this one will see something of the meaning of these, of these animals. Uh, Gordon Wenham says, The animal world is divided into three spheres. Those that fly in the air, those that walk on the land, and those that swim in the seas, as you see in Genesis chapter 1. Each, each sphere has a particular mode of motion associated with it. So land animals uh, move this way, and birds move this way, and, um, and, uh, and sea animals move in this particular way. Birds have two wings with which to fly and two feet for walking. Fish have fins and scales with which to swim, and land animals have hooves to run with. So clean animals are those that conform to those pure standard types. Those creatures which in some way transgress the boundaries are unclean. Thus, fish without fins and scales are unclean. Insects which fly uh, but would have many legs are unclean. Animals with an indeterminate form of motion which swarm are unclean. Holiness requires that individuals shall conform to the class to which they belong. Now, this particular view focuses on the categorization, and I find it compelling because that's the thing that seems to be obvious when you read, as we were hearing read, chapter 11. When it comes to these animals, this is what you're supposed to see from them. And when you're not seeing this from them, don't eat it. When it comes to these animals, you're supposed to be seeing this. And when you don't see that, don't eat the animal. Um, and so uh, these, uh, these animals have something to teach us. What this means is this. By telling the Jews which animals to eat, God wanted the Israelites to constantly be thinking about order and perfection. Something like this should act in this way. If it doesn't act in this way, it's to be rejected. Something like that should act in that way. If it doesn't act that way, it should be rejected. Let's reject this animal because it belongs to this category, but it does not conform to how things in that category should operate. The point here is this, is that God is a God of wholesomeness and order. God is not a God of chaos, where things can shift and change, but rather God is the one who, sex, who sets the boundaries and expects them to be kept. This tells us much about our God. 
and what he is like. God is perfect, holy, orderly. He presents himself as the God of beauty and order. All the designs in nature that he labored to make in order to show order and symmetry and to create the laws of physics and mathematics by which he orders the universe, all of that we see how orderly God is. It shows us that God is not a random, rebel-seeking God. But by way of application, I believe that the New Testament picks up on the orderliness of God when Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 14 that God is a God of order, therefore the way we worship him in church should be orderly. Have you read that passage? 1 Corinthians 14, he says, God is a God of order, therefore the way that we worship him should be orderly. You have to think about this. When you see Genesis chapter 1 as God creates the world, the main thing that screams out of you is that God is doing things in an orderly fashion. Whenever you read these laws throughout the Leviticus and Exodus, and then you read laws even in the New Testament, the overwhelming thing that you get is that God is orderly. He thinks things through and sets one thing after the other. He puts things well in their categories. Therefore, you and I, when we come to worship him, Paul says, we need to worship him in an orderly fashion, well thought through, one thing after the other. The fad desire that people have today that things should be a free-for-all on a Sunday morning is palpably unchristian. That we should just expect the spirit to move and then things happen that are chaotic and the spontaneity and things that are unorganized and that's letting the spirit be the spirit is palpably unchristian. That's what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 14. He says, God is a God of order, and therefore, we, when we worship him, we must worship him in order. People, for some reason, seem to believe that the presence of the Holy Spirit means that all kinds of screaming and shouting is what Sunday services should be like. But that is not biblical. When we think about God and how we are to make much of him, we must think of order and clarity. But also, this tells us much more. If we take that principle of God's orderliness and apply it to ourselves, it tells us much more. We ourselves must be an orderly people, not a chaotic people, all over the place, rebels. But rather, we must be those who are orderly like our God is orderly. We must not seek to be those who are so quick to not conform. Men thinking that they can just seem to think now that they can become women and vice versa. Just thinking, let me just be different for no particular reason. No, a man must be a man and follow the way of men because God has made him a man. And, so, and, so, and, and, and the same for a woman. We must conduct our thinking in an orderly fashion. The book of Proverbs, for example, encourages us always to consider issues in a logical fashion. And when you read the book of Proverbs, you get this. I must always think before I act. That's, that's one thing that just screams at you when you're reading the book of Proverbs. For example, Proverbs 15 verse 1 says, If you know that speaking harshly to someone is going to make them angry, then don't speak harshly to someone if the goal is to have a constructive conversation. 
Because what? A harsh word stirs up anger. But a kind word does what? Turns away wrath. So if you want to have a constructive conversation, what words should you use? Gentle words, kind words, so that you can deal with the issue and solve it. But if you want to have a shouting match, then go ahead, be insulting and belittle the person you're talking to. If what you want is chaos, then speak in a chaotic, chaotic manner. See, Proverbs also says that a man, a man without self-control is like a city with no walls. A man, who cannot, a man or a woman who cannot think before they act in a logical fashion. If I say this and then say that, this should be the result. If I act in this way, but rather a person who just acts because they feel like it. A person who just does things at the moment that they feel them, at the, at the time that they think them, without thinking them through and checking on them. Checking the sanity of what they're thinking. That person who does that is like a, a city with no walls, meaning like a city without any protection. You're going to have all sorts of problems. What we learn from the orderliness of God is that we, like, like God, must be people who are orderly, thinking things through, doing things in a considered manner. Your passions should not control you. Knee-jerk reactions should not control you. Don't propose to that person just because you had a feeling. Okay? Don't. Pro don't. Okay? Test the feeling. Let the feeling calm down. Don't just get yourself in all kinds of problems because you, can, you did not think and consider things logically. You follow. Now, the second thing to consider regarding this categorization of animals is that, <coughs> is that it is interesting that the animals that are rejected... In this, the animals that are rejected, the Bible sees them generally as having characteristics that are synonymous with sin. And the Bible throughout it uses those animals as teaching us about sinfulness. A snake is what? It's crafty. A pig is filthy. A vultures in the New Testament resemble false teachers because they gather around dead bodies. In fact, a Jewish teacher in uh, two centuries before the Lord Jesus uh, named Aristeas said this. He said, don't be like the birds who are unclean, who don't eat grain like normal birds should be doing, but rather go around and eating animals. So he, he, that's what he's teaching. He, that was his lesson from this. He says, don't go around acting like these birds who are acting out of order and eating things that are alive instead of eating grain. Now the point here is this. We as God's people must even look to the ways of the animal kingdom and learn how to be and not to be. Consider just those stories that teach you from the animal kingdom. Use even those to think about how you, you are to be and how you ought not to be. Proverbs 6 says, you must study who? The ant, and learn hard work and diligence. Jeremiah 8, chapter, 7, chapter 8, verse 7 says, you must study the stalk in the sky and see how she goes where she should go at the time when she's supposed to go there. And then the lesson in Jeremiah 8, verse 7 is this, you must also obey what God says. 
Jesus, in Luke chapter 12, says, Consider the ravens, an unclean bird of prey, and yet see how God feeds them. Now will he not feed you, because you to him are more important than unclean birds? See, throughout, I mean, this is just a sample. Throughout the Bible, we get snippets where we are given lessons from the animal kingdom. And so when we consider in the scriptures, we must always be thinking, when we consider the world around us and considering the ways of the animals, we can learn how to be and not to be, how we are to act. We are to not be sly like the fox. But there are certain cases where the Lord Jesus says we must have the cunning of serpents when we're dealing with unbelievers in certain situations and so forth. Well, that's the first one. That's animal. That's, uh, that's the, the unclean animals. The animals that are unclean, it's because they are out of order in the sense. And so they teach us that God is a God of order. Number two, bodily discharges. Bodily discharges. In chapter 12 and in chapter 15, we have laws that express uncleanness on account of various bodily discharges. Chapter 12 discusses that a woman is unclean after giving birth. Let me just read for you a little bit so you can get and understand a taste here. It says this in Leviticus 12, verse 1. The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the people of Israel, saying, If a woman conceives and bears a male child, then she shall be unclean seven days. And on the eighth day, the flesh of his foreskin shall be circumcised, then she shall continue for 43 days in the blood of her purifying. She shall not touch anything holy, nor come into the sanctuary until the days of her purifying are completed. But if she bears a female child, then she shall be unclean two weeks as in her menstruation. And she shall continue in the blood of her purifying for 66 days. Chapter 15 discusses all various kinds of bodily discharges. Chapter 15, verse 1. And the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron, saying, Speak to the people of Israel and say to them, When any man has a discharge from his body, his discharge is unclean. And then he goes on to detail what, what, <coughs> what should go on there. Now, you, you might be sitting here and wondering, why would God consider a woman unclean to come to worship after she has given birth? What's wrong or sinful about a woman giving birth? Does God view birth, giving birth negatively? Well, let me set you at ease. There is nothing wrong or sinful uh, about giving birth. There's nothing in the picture of giving birth that is evil. In fact, we know throughout the book of Leviticus and throughout the history of Israel that people were seeking children, that is, people were seeking to give birth because that was never the intended meaning. However, in the process of giving birth, that is, in the process of bringing new life, we see a key difference between God and men. That God sees that difference so important that in the Le Levitical law, he wants to underline. I want you to think with me for a moment. The very nature of humanity is weakness. And our weakness, as opposed to God, is inherent to us. Some of our weakness is as a result of the fall, 
And some of our weakness is because we are creatures and not God. Think about this. For us to be productive, that is, for us to produce something, we have to suffer loss in some shape or form, right? If to be, for you to be productive, you have to suffer some kind of loss. When you work, when you apply your mind to your work or to your studying, whatever it is that you do, you expend energy such that at the end of the day, you need to sleep. Whether the work is fulfilling or not, whether you love the work or you hate the work, Doing it means that you lose vitality. You lose energy. You lose something. You can't keep doing it for hours on end. For a woman to bring forth a life, she is to lose a lot of vitality. The main reason repeated in chapter 12 for why the woman is unclean is, that the, is the fact that she has lost blood. And her purification process is called the blood of her purifying in Leviticus, the life is in the blood. So if you read Leviticus, you know that the life is in the blood, and that is why the Israelites were told to not eat uh, fresh blood from animals. They have to burn up the blood. They shouldn't eat the blood because the life is in the blood. So when a woman brings forth a life, but in doing so, she loses blood, meaning she loses life. She loses vitality. She, at that moment, is completely unlike God. Not in a sinful way, but in a creaturely way. She is now not whole. She is not whole and complete because she is losing vitality. The loss of blood suggests a lack of perfection, a blemish, and an unwhole person. God, on the other hand, creates without losing any vitality. When God creates man, he loses not a wink. When God brought forth the light and the seas and the land and the intricate systems that run our universe, it was no different to him as, than as if he had just yawned. He loses no energy. He loses no vitality. It's the same reason why in chapter 15 we hear about reproductive discharges on both men and women and how people must cleanse themselves and how long they are to be unclean for. It is because for us to be reproductive, that is for us to produce and further our species, that leaves us unwhole and needing to be replenished. And in chapter 15, it's not just reproductive, but any discharge makes a person unclean, which speaks to our weakness and how often we lose wholeness. We're not intact. We're constantly losing a part of ourselves. See, friends, it is because of chapters 12 and chapter 15 that people uh, and, you know, clever people of the day always say that the Bible is full of barbaric nonsense. And I tell you that Leviticus, I want to defend Leviticus to you this morning. Leviticus is not some weird, archaic book that has a, a barbaric ancient customs, but rather it reveals something about God. You see, it's using analogies to teach us about the very nature and power and the extent of God's power in who God is and what he is like. God is whole, perfect, infinite. The doctrine of God's infinity suggests that he is immense in every way. God is powerful beyond measure 
energetic beyond measure. He is productive, making things happen while losing no energy and needing no replenishment. You might be wondering with me for a second, wait a second, didn't God rest after creating the world? Do you remember that? After the six days and then the seventh day, he rested. Doesn't that mean that he had lost something such that he needs rest? And I'll answer you and say no. That language was accommodated to us to communicate the perfection of God's work at the end of the creation week. God did not actually sit down and say, whew, there was a lot of work. <laughs> but rather, when he rests, he is saying, my work is complete. It is perfect. That is why seven is the number of perfection. When something is complete, whole, and nothing else needs to be done to it. That's what that language is talking about. In fact, in John chapter 10, the Lord Jesus tells us that the Lord God has never stopped working and he is continuing to work even to this day. But all of that is up here. What does that mean for you and me? God loses no energy. God is whole. God is perfect and infinite in every way. What does that mean for you this morning? I want you to think about this. Turn with me for a moment to Psalm 121, just for a moment. I want to show you something. Psalm 121. We'll read from verse 1. Psalm 121. I lift up, verse 1, I lift up my eyes to the hills. From where does my help come? My help comes from the Lord, who made heaven and earth. <coughs> Verse 3. He will not let your foot be moved. He who keeps you will not slumber. Behold, he who keeps Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. Excuse me. In the worries of life, in the, the exhaustions of life, where does our help come from? We must turn our eyes to the hills and see the one who loses no energy. There is no reason to not trust him. He cares for us. And there is no time of the day we should approach him at when he's at his most energetic he doesn't need a time out, a break, a holiday, a vacation. If we must repeatedly pray to him about a particular issue, then have at it. Repeatedly pray. He has no exhaustion from listening to you. Now listen to me. I love my children. But my five-year-old definitely exhausts me with his talking sometimes. Okay. But God is not so. God has no parts within him that need to, to, to be regularized in a certain way such that he's at a perfect moment in order to listen and pay attention. He does not lose any energy. Always remember the parable of the persistent widow. Do you remember the parable? God's unending energy is for our benefit. Those of us who have called on his name. But I want you to also listen to me. This reality that God does not grow weary also means something else. Those who have offended him in sin and those who make light of his laws, 
he will never get tired of bringing them to justice. You have to listen to me, friend. If, you, if you're not in Christ, listen to me. If you have sinned and have not made peace with God, then he will not tire and he will not lose any energy in punishing you for all eternity. There will be no abating. His harm will not grow weary such that he needs to change arms. There will be constant punishment unending because you have offended him and broken his law. Now, the only way to escape this is to not hope that at some point throughout eternity he's going to get tired and then leave you alone. But rather, the only way to escape this is to come to him now for forgiveness of your sins. Come to him now. Make peace with him now on the terms that he gives while there is still opportunity. That is what we learn from the uncleanness of bodily discharges in chapter 12 and chapter 15. God is whole. We are sometimes not whole. God loses no energy, and we are often losing energy. Verse, uh, the third thing and the final thing that we will consider now is leprosy. That is, con- that is the concern of chapter 13 and chapter 14. The Lord spoke to Moses in verse, chapter 13, verse 1. It says this, Uh, The Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron, saying, When a person has on the skin of his body a swelling or an eruption or a spot, and it turns into a case of leprous disease on the skin of his body, then he shall be brought to Aaron and the priest or to one of his sons, the priests, and the priest shall examine the diseased area on the skin of his body, And if the hair in the diseased area has turned white and the disease appears to be deeper than the skin of his body, it is a case of leprous disease. When the priest has examined him, he shall pronounce him unclean. And then the chapter goes on to speak about uh, other cases of looking at leprosy. And then chapter 14 talks about the cleansing of someone who has been now freed from leprosy. Why is leprosy not allowed at the temple. Why is somebody who has a leprous disease uh, considered to be unclean? (coughs) Excuse me. (coughs) Leprosy, that disease that was horrible and caused much pain and suffering, is nothing but a visible, walking picture of sin and death. And it was a picture you could not switch off easily. And because the person with leprosy was effectively death on two feet, he is considered unclean. Why? Because God has nothing to do with death. God has nothing to do with death. And I want you to think about this. Death seems to feature prominently in the Levitical worship system, right? All these animals that are being killed all the time, all these sacrifices. And yet, the Bible calls death an enemy of God. In 1 Corinthians 15, death is the last enemy that will be conquered. So among all of God's enemies, one of them is death, and he will be the last one that will be conquered. And why is it that death is an enemy such that some
Now you might wonder with me here, if these laws communicated such wonderful truths, these laws, you know, the animal food laws teaching us to understand order uh, and right behavior, or bodily discharges teaching us that God loses no energy, and leprosy showing us that God is the furthest thing from death, you might wonder then, why is it that in the New Testament these laws fall away? If there were such good laws, then why did they fall away in the New Testament? Here's the singular overarching reason. Jesus came. When Jesus is in front of us, we now see what God is like. These things were all pictures communicating something this side and something this side of the real deal, the real meat of what God truly is. We now see it in the Son of Man who walked the earth. Now when we study God, we study Jesus. You remember what Philip said, show us the Father and it will be enough for us. And Jesus said, I beg of you. If you want to know what God is like, look at Jesus. If you want to know what life is like, look at Jesus. If you want to know what unrelenting love is like, look at Jesus. If you want to know what it is, sacrifice for the good of others, you look at Jesus. If in any case, you want life, not death. If in any case, you want order and not chaos. And if in any case, you want someone to have your back that you can trust, Whatever the time of the day is, you must come to Christ. Come to the Lord Jesus Christ, because He is the embodiment of these beautiful realities and so much more. Amen.
evening service tonight of five, and also uh, Good Friday, 9 a.m. this coming Friday. Uh, all are welcome. Please do invite friends and family, especially if it's an opportunity for those who don't often come to church to come and hear the gospel. So please do remember that. And as you leave, those of you who have name tags, be sure to put it back in the box. Let me announce to you the benediction that I believe is appropriate from Romans chapter 11. All oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his judgments and how uninscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord? For who has been his counselor? For who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever.